Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a uh, black one located there in the back of the pew in front of you, and uh, you are welcome to have that as our gift to you today. So please take uh, and read and uh, learn from God as He guides you through His Holy Spirit in the study of His Word. Well, this morning we're wrapping up a series we've been doing through the month of October uh, called The Courageous Life, built off of the courageous movie that was in theaters, and I think it's still been in theaters up to the last couple of weeks even. And uh, we've been looking at themes that were raised in the movies and lessons that it taught and then talking about about how Old Testament characters dealt with some of those same issues, those same themes, those same challenges, and how they glorified God as a result of handling these things in a God-honoring way. But here's what I want you to grasp, and we saw this particularly last week, even when these men didn't get it right. Even when they didn't get it right, God was still glorified. That's a huge lesson for us to remember. Even if we don't get it right, we can still glorify, bring glory and honor to Christ. One of the themes that we've discussed over and over again this month has been the issue of parenting. And I, and I told you, I've been the first to admit the conviction that came to my own heart uh, as I watched the movie and was presented with some of the challenges from that, uh, from the movie. And one character in the movie expressed when he realized that he had fallen short of God's expectations for him as a parent, he said, I didn't start well, but I want to finish well. And I thought that's a very appropriate way, I think, for us to wrap up our study this month on the courageous life is maybe I didn't start well, but I want to finish well. And so as you think about your life, there may be areas that you could identify right off the bat and say, you know what, I didn't start well there or many areas where you didn't start well. But you say, you know what, I really would like to finish well in in glorifying and honoring God. And I want you to know that through God's power and in God's strength, you can finish well. Now, last week, I issued a pretty strong challenge for parents. And I'll tell you, I really wrestled with with the presentation uh, of that uh, as we talked about parents delivering their children into adulthood, grounded in God's word and focused uh, focused on Christ. And the challenge for me in that is there, there's a, a concept that it's a big concept and it's got things on both ends of the spectrum. And I wanted to present a very strong challenge to parents, particularly parents whose children are still small, who are still at home about the important responsibility that, that you have and that we have as parents uh, to teach our children, to instill in them a love for God's word and a desire to serve Christ and all they do. I really wanted that challenge uh, to fall on parents and for us to really think about that and say, you know what? That's right. I, 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 this is my charge. This is what God calls me to do, what God expects me to do. And I need to be diligent. I need to be focused in that task. That's one side of the challenge that we need to take that seriously. Well, the other end of the spectrum, and this is what we do sometimes, the other end of the spectrum, we can sometimes give ourselves an out when we present everything together. For instance, people say this all the time. Well, I know I shouldn't do this. I mean, I know it's wrong, you know, but look, I'm a sinner, right? You know, I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect. So, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to make mistakes. And so basically what they're saying is, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I'm going to excuse it as sin and say, well, I can't help myself. 
Well, don't do it. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches. Don't give yourself an out and say, well, I know I'm going to sin, so I think I'm going to enjoy this sin because it's one I kind of like, you know. No, that's not the way it's supposed to work, all right? If we know it's sin, we're supposed to avoid that. And if we know our challenge as parents is, is to do that, then we should be focused on that challenge. But the other side of this coin, and it's a very real side of the coin, is this. We have no guarantees, parents. We have no guarantees. And I know some of you sat here last week and you're like, man, my children are older, they're gone and and they're out and I didn't capitalize on those opportunities and now my my chance has passed. You know, they're, they're out, they're making their decisions, they're making their choices. But we recognize and we must recognize that we will all raise children who will one day make their own choices and their own decisions. And some of those choices and decisions they make will be contrary to what you have taught them as a godly parent and what you try to instill and teach and model for them. And some of those things will be counter to God's word and God's will for their lives. And I have seen parents over and over again struggle with guilt over the decisions that their children's made as they took varying paths uh, in not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this morning's character, he's a great person for us to study because he experienced some of that defeat, some of that guilt, some of that loneliness, that emptiness on the inside because things weren't going like he thought they should. And here's the thing. This man did everything he was supposed to do and he did it right. And he still experienced that loneliness, that despair, that emptiness of saying, what's up with that? Why didn't it turn out better? Because I I thought I was doing and I did what I thought I was supposed to do before God. So as we, we look at his life, we realize that we can do all that we're supposed to do and still not have things turn out like we hoped they would or like we expect that they might. But here's the thing. The prescription is always the same when we find ourselves at that point in life. And here it is. Draw near to Christ. Draw near to Christ. Come to God. Let God do the work of healing, refreshing, and encouraging your heart and your spirit and reminding you that he is in control no matter what. He is in control no matter what. In 1 Kings 19, we catch up with the prophet Elijah. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember some of our discussion about kings of Israel and prophets. The kings of Israel had prophets who were their spiritual liaison, their spiritual connection, maybe their spiritual interpreter, if you will, in going to God. If a king was a wise king, and the Bible described a wise king as one whose heart was devoted to God, uh, one who, who wanted to obey and do what God instructed, that wise king would go to the prophet and say, what does God want us to do? What would God have me do as king for the nation of Israel? And when that prophet delivered a message from, the, from God, a wise king would say, say, okay, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do that. And in Israel's history, there are a few kings, very few kings who were considered wise, who were considered good kings because they listened to and they sought after and they obeyed God's word and God's instruction. And there were very few because kings, like all human beings, had a sin nature and they were prone to disobey God. 
And there were a number of bad kings. If you read through the book of First and Second Kings, you'll see in First and Second Chronicles a number of bad kings. And you know what defined a bad king? How it was defined as a king who didn't seek after God, as a king whose heart wasn't focused on the things of God. So these bad kings didn't go to the prophets and say, what does God want us to do? They didn't care what God wanted them to do. They were going to follow their desires, their whims, their will, what they wanted to do. And you know what? That made the prophet's job very, very difficult at times because the prophet would receive a message from God and the prophet would go and would deliver that message from God. And generally it wasn't a positive, hey, you're doing a great job, pat you on the back, kudos to you kind of a message. It was often a message of, of punishment for, or discipline coming their way because of the sin and the disobedience of the king. Now, as you might imagine, as this prophet would come and deliver this message, who do you think the king got mad at? The prophet. And so many of the prophets were beaten. They were imprisoned. Some of them were even killed because of the messages that they came and they delivered from God himself. And even if they didn't suffer to that level, they were belittled. They were berated. They were persecuted for the message that they proclaimed, the message that had come from God. Now, I want to just parenthetically note here that pastors have a prophetic function in preaching and teaching within the church, all right? So remember, I'm the messenger, all right? Don't shoot the messenger. It's the message from the Lord. Uh, I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just saying, you know, on, on that right there. But Elijah's situation was he had to deal with a particularly wicked king named Ahab, and perhaps Ahab's worst decision ever was marrying an evil, sinister, idol-worshiping wife named Jezebel. You look up evil and wicked in the dictionary, and man, there's her picture, you know, right there with it. I mean, her, her evil and, and wicked ways, sinister ways were so heinous that her name has become synonymous with evil. I mean, just think about it. Do, do you know any women named Jezebel? Not called a Jezebel, actually formally, officially named Jezebel. I almost did a Google search to research that, but figured my accountability partner would get an inappropriate query report. So I was like, yeah, I probably don't even want to know what is out in cyberspace connected to the name Jezebel. I mean, it's just, there's just such wickedness and, and, and vile, heinous ways that surrounded this woman and the evil that she brought to the nation of Israel. So here's Elijah's job. Elijah is the one who has to go and tell Ahab and Jezebel that God is, to put it mildly, less than happy with them and what they're doing. So Elijah has to go and deliver this message. Well, they never liked these messages. And so there's this constant bickering back and forth and this threatening for Elijah and all these things that are taking place. So it culminates in 1 Kings 18 with a confrontation uh, on, on, uh, on top of the mountain where Elijah calls Baal's prophets, these prophets for Jezebel, to the mountaintop, and they have a showdown. They set an offering there out in the open, and they each pray to their God. And Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. says, you pray to Baal, and if he's God, let him call down fire and consume this offering uh, that's here on top of the mountain. And if he doesn't, then I'll pray to my God, and maybe he'll send down fire. And we'll know at the end of the day whose God is real, because we'll know whose God sends down fire and consumes the offering. It is a great story. I encourage you to go back and read all of 1 Kings chapter 18. Maybe it's something you can do with your spouse or with your kids tonight. It's an awesome story, particularly if you are even the least bit sarcastic, all right? Because here's what's happens. As Baal's prophets are trying to get Baal to come and do that, I mean, they're dancing around and they're, they're like cutting themselves, trying to get Baal's attention, making all this sort of noise. Elijah taunts them. 
I mean, he knows that Baal is not a real God. And so he, he taunts them a little bit, you know, aggravates them. He yells and he says, hey, maybe he's taking a trip. Maybe he's not home. So you guys keep going. You'll, you'll get his attention as he gets back. He says, maybe he's taking a nap. So why don't you yell a little bit louder, jump a little bit higher. Maybe he's sleeping on you. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Yeah, he's busy. He's tied up in the bathroom. Potty humor right there in 1 Kings 18. It's awesome right in the Bible. You got to read the account and the story that's there because Elijah does this and nothing happens. The offering sits there on the altar. Nothing whatsoever happens. And it's obvious it wouldn't happen because Baal's not a real God. I mean, there's no God there to respond. So then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah prays that God would send down the fire. And God answers powerfully. He sends down the fire and it consumes the offering. It consumes the altar. It consumes the water that had been poured over the altar. It consumes the stones that made the little trench that held the water around everything totally consumed with this fire that fell from God. God answers and he was the clear victor in this battle as God is always the clear victor. So God wins the battle and consuming the offerings. And then Elijah following God's instruction has all 450 prophets of Baal killed right there on the mountaintop. That was God's instruction. It was their punishment for their idolatry and their worship and for leading the nation of Israel astray to follow after him. So that's what happens on top of the mountain. Well, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah and here's what she says. She's ticked off that he just killed all of her prophets. And she said, I am going to kill you within the next 24 hours. I'm gonna do to you what you just did to all of my prophets. She swears an oath that she's gonna have Elijah killed within the next 24 hours. So here's this first truth that I want us to understand this morning as we think about trying to live a courageous life of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. And you need to kind of see this, get this visual. I want you to leave with this visual in your mind. Spiritual victories result in spiritual opposition and often lead to spiritual letdown. I want you to get this motion in your mind. Spiritual victories lead to increased spiritual opposition and very often spiritual letdown. There's this up and down in our spiritual journey, in our spiritual lives. And we see this over and over throughout scripture. Think about Noah. Noah Noah and his family survived the flood. Then Noah got drunk and exposed himself to his son. Spiritual victory, spiritual opposition, spiritual letdown. Uh, We see this story uh, take place with Moses. Moses goes and he leads the children of Israel. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. He leads them out of Egypt. So what are their spiritual victories? Well, they see all the plagues. They cross the Red Sea. They see God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. Increased spiritual opposition is when they get to the promised land and they go in and look at the promised land, they say, man, the people are big in there and they're scary and we don't want to go fight them. We can't beat those people. Spiritual opposition and let down because they don't go into the promised land, even though God had told them what? It's yours. I've already given it to you. All you have to do is go in and take possession of it. So they see all those victories, get afraid of the people who are in the promised land and have a spiritual letdown as they wander for 40 years in the wilderness while an entire generation of people dies off. So Moses saw this spiritual victory, spiritual opposition followed by spiritual letdown. David was one. David was anointed to be the second king of Israel after King Saul. Uh, And David killed Goliath, a great victory. David served in Saul's army. David got to marry one of Saul's daughters uh, in the king. Great victories in David's life. But then Saul gets jealous about David because he's going to take over 
over as the next king. So Saul begins to chase after him, trying to kill him. So David then, in his letdown, lives for years on the run as a fugitive, a desperado in caves in the wilderness, even at points, having to live in a foreign land. You go, man, I'm anointed king and I have this great victory and all, and then I'm on the run all these years. Well, finally, David does get to take throne as the king of Israel. And what happens? The adulterous relationship with Bathsheba that we looked at last week. We see this up and down. Joseph, man, Joseph's life is like a heart monitor. My goodness. The guy sees a vision that all of his family is going to bow down to him one day. Then the same family is going to bow down to him, beats him up and almost kills him and then sells him into slavery. Well, he becomes the head slave in his master's household, spiritual victory. The opposition comes. He does the right thing by not sleeping with his boss's wife. And what happens? He gets thrown into an Egyptian prison. Well, he becomes the chief prisoner in the prison and interprets dreams for two of Pharaoh's servants who could have sprung him out of prison like that, but they forget about the guy for two years. It's like, man, can he not get a break anywhere? This in his life, finally back in the prison for two years, He does have the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream and finally becomes the second in command for all of Egypt, setting the stage for them to be delivered from slavery in Egypt under Moses some 400 years later. So we see this pattern. Even Jesus experienced part of the curve. He didn't experience all of it. Jesus in his spiritual spiritual victory and, and significance in his life as he was baptized and his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What happened after that? The Bible said that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Now there wasn't the spiritual letdown because Jesus didn't succumb to those temptations, but we see the opposition that was there. Peter was the same way. Peter got to confess Christ, who he was. He was, uh, he was God's son. And Peter confessed that Jesus said, you're, you are the rock. I'll build my church on this confession of faith. And then Peter denied Christ uh, when he was arrested. So we see the spiritual victory followed by increased spiritual opposition and very often a spiritual letdown. I went through all of that because here's what I want you to know. You are not immune. This will be your spiritual journey. This is what will happen in your life. And do you know why it happens this way? It's because Satan can't see the future. Satan can't see the future. He has to react to what's taking place in your life. So when you have a spiritual victory, when you have a spiritual breakthrough, when you begin walking in close relationship with Christ, Satan ramps up his efforts, his attack to keep you from following and being more obedient and more fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're living the the powerless, defeated, anemic Christian life, Satan doesn't mess with you. He doesn't need to mess with you. You're not making a difference. You're not on fire for Christ. You're not living for him. Uh, And so he just has his minions keep an eye on you as you kind of muddle and, and, and go through the motions of your Christianity. But when God gets a hold of your heart and when you get serious about living a fully surrendered life to Jesus Christ, when you are sold out for the cause of Christ, and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks, it doesn't matter what anyone says, you say, says, you say, I'm going to obey Christ, do what he's called me to do. When you begin to experience what Paul wrote about, I asked Grant if we could sing, lead me to the cross this morning, because man, that song so sums up what Paul was writing about. And it's taken from, from the book of Philippians when Paul said this, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's the word for garbage. Paul says, anything that I've attained, anything that I've achieved, I count it as garbage. Put it on the curb, let it be taken away to rot, to smell, to stink. Anything that I've done in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Paul says, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, and this is what he says, that I, one, may know him, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the power of Jesus' resurrection, and may share his sufferings. And we like that first two part, knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but sharing in his sufferings, the spiritual opposition, the, the attacks from Satan and, the arm, and his armies and those under his influence and control. We, we don't care too much about the sufferings. Becoming like him, Paul says, in his death. So when we wake up and we get serious about living our life for Christ and being on fire for him, I just imagine that bells and whistles and all kinds of lights go off in hell and Satan and his army's like, we got to get up there. This, this guy or this girl, they're reading their Bible. Uh, they're beginning to pray diligently. They're, they're seeking to obey God. They're making significant changes in their life to honor Christ and all they do. We got to get up there and mess up this guy's life. He's getting serious. She's getting serious. And we got to stop it because more people are going to come to Christ because of his witness, because of her testimony, because of their devotion to Christ. So you guys get up there and do something. Slow them down. Put out, quench the fire of the Holy Spirit and get to it yesterday. Now that's the first Curtis chapter three version of how that works out. But still, that's how Satan reacts as we begin to live our lives more fully devoted to Christ because he can't see the future. Although Pastor Joe this week, as we were discussing this, he said, well, I think one part of the future he can see, he knows how it's going to end. You know, he's going he's to lose that. So he's working against that, but he can't see the details of the future and work against us in advance. So I go through all that to say this pattern is what happened to Elijah. Think about it. the guy put the smack down on 450 prophets of Baal on, on top of the mountain with, with, with hundreds, probably thousands of people around. And then one woman, albeit a really wicked woman, but it's still one woman threatens him. And if you didn't know this spiritual principle of ups and downs that we go through, you would think that Elijah, here's this threat from Jezebel that she says, oh, well, I'm going to kill you within a day, just like you did to all my prophets of Baal. You would think that Elijah might step out in the street, you know, sun up and look up at the castle and say, you want a piece of me? Bring it on, Jezzy. Let's get this done right now. I mean, that's what you would think. The guy just put the smack down on 450 prophets of Baal, saw firefall, killed all 450 of them. You would think he's got a little bit of boldness, a little bit of swagger about him to say, What? But do you know what he does? Do you know what he does? He runs. He runs into the wilderness, scared to death, with such despair, such fear in his life that he actually says this to God. God, just kill me and put me out of my misery. Read it. 
I'm summarizing. That, that, that's the story. That's what he says. He, he asked God to kill him. And do you know what God told him? This is awesome. We're talking about the courageous life, being bold for Christ and standing up and, you know, let nothing move us, let nothing sway us. So God probably comes to Elijah who's running. He's scared. He's all wimpy, 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 you know, and, and he, he's, God looks down at him and says, what are you doing, Elijah? Drop and give me 20, soldier. Get back in there. Why are you running from this woman? You go tell her you got a message from me. You're going down, woman. That's the message, you know. What do you think God tells Elijah to pump him up, to motivate him, to encourage him? What would it take to pump you up and motivate you to get you back in the game when you're running and you're scared and you're ready to end your life because you feel like you can't go on? What would it take to motivate you? You think it's got to be something big. It's got to be something powerful. Here's what God tells Elijah. Take a nap and eat something. Really? That's the motivation, the encouragement? Take a nap and eat something? It is. Look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Okay, first thing is this, forget the five-hour energy drink. Give me some of that bread and water, right? I mean, 40 days and 40 nights and that bread and water, I'm buying stock in the company that patents that stuff, right? You know, it's, that, that, that's an amazing that we see there. But here's what we recognize from this. And I want to remind you of this. We're talking about this spiritual opposition that comes uh, when we have spiritual victories in our lives. Be wary of making decisions when you're tired and hungry. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, be very wary of making significant decisions when you're empty, when you're drained, when you're not walking closely with the Lord, when you're not providing self-care and the rest uh, that you need. You're not in a great state of mind to be making significant decisions. It's a spiritual principle that we all need to be alert to. And I, and I enforce this with the staff. Grant has a newborn, and she was born in, in February. She's now starting to sleep a little bit more through the nights. I am finally letting Grant make some decisions in his ministry area. <laughs> Because he's, he's, he's getting some rest. I mean, he, he came in a couple of months ago. I was like, we're going to do Jeremiah was a bullfrog for offering on, on Sunday. I was like, dude, you didn't get any sleep last night, did you? Well, it was kind of a long night, you know. And Pastor Joe's sitting here with Allison, who at any point now is, is ready to deliver their first baby. He's about to lose his decision-making abilities, all right? Because uh, we, we just know what the next few months, you know, hold for him. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just messing uh, with these guys. Uh, but... But one of my summer missions director told this story of Elijah and brought us to this point. And he, he gave a devotion to just remind us as summer missionaries that we needed to take time for self-care, for rest, to nurture our relationship and our walk with God. And, and he made this quote uh, to us. He said, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. You do not even know how many times I've quoted Tom Smoot in my life and in my spiritual journey. But every Sunday afternoon, just after lunch, I get real spiritual, you know, all right? Uh, j j just ask my wife and my family that, that that's the case. 
But, but in all seriousness, we need time for rest, for self-care, for nurturing, for growth, and just personal, intimate communion and fellowship with God, our creator, and Jesus Christ, our savior. And when you begin more faithfully serving God, you're going to experience greater spiritual opposition. And if you do not maintain that close walk and intimate relationship with Christ, Satan will eat your lunch. I have seen it over and over and over again in ministry. People giving and serving, not caring for themselves, and then finding spiritual uh, emptiness. You know, running on empty, running in their own strength, and sometimes succumbing to moral failure as a result. I mean, remember that rest is one of the original Ten Commandments. God gave it the, the Sabbath, the time to rest. And I'm all for, you guys have heard me preach, I'm all for challenging Christians, get in the game, give your all, leave nothing in the tank, go hard after God as you seek to serve him. I'm all about that. But I also understand the importance of Sabbath and rest and that communion, that, that time alone with God that God outlines for his people. Now, many Christians have turned into, you know, Christian couch potatoes, and that's a whole, you know, another sermon. But, but there are some at the other end of the spectrum who have so overextended themselves and eventually burnt themselves out in serving God and in ministry that they, that they crash and burn spiritually and maybe even morally because they failed to apply this principle to their lives. And, and this is what gets me, and we do this in a lot of different areas, but this one is, is very obvious. People spiritualize their disobedience to scripture in this area. I heard a guy one time, a pastor, talking about, you know, taking days off and just spending time to, to be home and be with his family and just not be in the office doing work. The guy said this. He said, Satan doesn't take a day off, so neither will I. And my response was, okay, Satan doesn't take a day off. God did. Which one do you want to be more like, dude? When you're a pastor, for Pete's sake, Satan doesn't take a day off, God did. I think I'd rather go with the God side of it. You know, just, that's just me. And the other one that people, I love this one. I'd rather burn out than rust out. I love that one. I'd rather burn out than rust out. Well, here's, my, here's the point in that. Either way, you're out, okay? The end result is the same, and God doesn't want you out. He wants you in, in relationship with him, in his word, in ministry, serving, using the gifts and the abilities he's given you. He wants you in, not out. So, so find pace and find balance. And we only have to look to Jesus to find that it's there. John chapter 130, verse 35 says that Jesus, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, got up and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus got up and left and went by himself to spend time with God. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke says this, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. I mean, people were always clamoring for more Jesus, more Jesus, more Jesus. And there were always people to heal, lessons to teach, miracles to perform, all these things to do. Yet Jesus very regularly, it was a pattern in his ministry, would take time to get away from the crowds to go either be by himself spending time in prayer and relationship with God, or he would take the disciples and slip off with them so he could teach them and train them and talk with them about what was taking place or give them instructions for the future. So here's the question I have for you. Do you think you're stronger, more energetic, or have more longevity in ministry than Jesus did? That you wouldn't need time to rest and to spend in quiet communion and fellowship alone with God? 
Jesus had a three-year ministry. Three years did he have his public ministry. And yet in that three years, he very often took time to go and spend time alone with God or time together with the disciples. Do you think that your work and your effort is more significant than what Jesus' work and effort was in his ministry and serving God? Well, obviously it's not. So if Jesus found it important enough to take that time, we should find it important enough to rest, to spend that time alone with God. We need it. And if Jesus saw the importance of it and modeled it for us, then we should follow his example. And here's the thing. This is what happens with Elijah. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb and he meets with God. And that is exactly what he needed. It made all the difference in his attitude, in his approach, in his obedience to God. He goes to this mountain and he gets before God and he tells God that he's tired tells God that he's scared. He tells God that he's lonely. So Lord, I'm the only one left who's still faithfully serving you. He pours out his heart, empties himself before God. And then after he's done that, and he's still before the Lord, the Bible says that a strong wind came, but God didn't speak to Elijah through the strong wind. Then it says an earthquake came, but God didn't speak to Elijah through the earthquake. Then it says a fire came, but God didn't speak to Elijah through the fire. The end of verse 12, 1 Kings 19, says, And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. A low whisper. Now, why would it be that God wouldn't speak in the, the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but he speaks in a low whisper? I think it's because of this. I think because God wants us to get still. And to get quiet before him so that we know we've made the effort and the work that we want to hear what it is that he's going to say to us. He doesn't yell over the television. He won't blare over our, our stereo, you know, in our, in our car or in our room or our iPod, you know, in our, in, our, our, in our ears. He doesn't send a text message that interrupts our Angry Birds game or us, you know, tooling through Facebook to see what's going on. No, God says, get still before me. Be quiet. And listen, and I will speak. I will tell you what you need to hear. And God does that for Elijah. He tells him three things. The first two, uh, he, he tells him in, the, uh, in verse 16, he says, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So he says, Elijah, a new day is dawning. There's going to be a new king. Ahab's sin has not gone unnoticed, nor will it go unpunished. There's going to be a new king, Elijah. I've taken care of that. So he refreshes him by telling him there's going to be a new king. Then he says, the next part of the verse, And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahaloah, or something Hawaiian like that, um, Elijah, his son, listen to what he says, You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So he tells him that a new leader is ready. There's a new leader. Someone's going to come and take his place, his role as the prophet. He was going to lead the people and Elijah was going to receive his reward for his faithfulness to God. And then verse 18, God tells him this last thing. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God says to Elijah, you are not alone. 
You feel like you've been alone. You told me that you're alone, but you're not alone. There are more who have been faithful to me and they are with you and they are going to be with you as you go forward. So I wanna remind you of these three things this morning. First of all, today can be a new day for you. God is a God who gives second chances, who gives new opportunities. And some of you may sit and say, you know, I I blew my first chance. I blew my first opportunity. You know what? That doesn't matter. God gives you a new chance, a new opportunity to, to finish well, to do right before him today. But here's the other side of that. Maybe you did well in your first opportunity. You did all that you could and you made the investment and you, you poured your life into it, but it didn't turn out well. You know what? God still gives you another opportunity to serve him and to walk in obedience to him in a new situation, in a new season of your life. And see, here's the thing about these new opportunities. You know, Jesus had a three-year ministry. And I think for us, a lot of times we say, you know what, if I had a three-year ministry, I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to barrel through, just get it over with. And then when that's over, then I'll start, you know, something else. Well, Jesus took that time for rest and communion with God. The problem was saying, well, when I finish this, then I'm going to make changes. Then I'll spend time with the wife, with the kids, or then I'll get, you know, more involved in church and get plugged into a Sunday school or start serving. When this season's over, then I'll do that. You know, the problem with that, when this season over, guess what happens? Another season starts. And if we don't make those changes and make those, those, uh, those habits in our lives now, we'll, we'll miss those chances in the future. So, so remember a new day is dawning for you. Secondly, I would encourage you invest in people. Elisha was ready, but Elijah had to mentor him. He had to teach him uh, and train him what he needed to do. Uh, And so God sends people into our lives for us to invest in those people, to come to Christ, to grow in their spiritual relationship and walk with him. And we've talked about the role and the task as parents, or maybe you've mentored and you've discipled someone who came to Christ and they, they kind of fell away from the Lord or they, they backslid a little bit and say, I, you know what, I don't want to do that again because it was painful watching this person fall away. Hey, never forget that Jesus had one who didn't follow after him. Jesus poured his life into Judas just like he did the other 11. And the Bible says that Judas, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. Yet Jesus gave him every opportunity and taught and invested in him just as he did the other disciples. If Jesus is going to have one who's who's going to turn and walk away and reject what he brought, you, you may not have a better ratio than that. All right, understand that. But God still calls you to invest in people. And finally, remember, you are not alone. You are not alone. God himself is with you. God brings other people into your life. So allow them the opportunity to come alongside and journey with you through the low points, but also to celebrate the high points with you in life. Draw close to God. Get still before him and listen for his voice. He will show you what to do next. I didn't start well, but I want to finish well. You know, Elijah's not a perfect parallel because it's not that Elijah didn't start well. He did just fine. But what I wanted you to see was what he did in order to be strengthened before God so that he could finish well. So where are you this morning? Do you need to make some adjustments? Do you need to make some changes in your life? Do you need to increase the margins, the the, the pace and the tempo of your life so that you can have some time for for rest and, and quiet time before God so you can hear a fresh word from God so we can speak to your heart and spirit to guide you and direct you? Maybe you need to sit down with your family and call a time out and say, you know what, we need to make some changes. I really feel like God's leading us to this. And so let's talk about some of the changes we want to make in our family. But maybe it's not a matter of talking about changes you want to make. Maybe you just need to do it. 
Maybe you've talked about it before and your family's like, hey, we've heard, we've heard all this before. Talk is cheap. Let's see some action now. And so it's not a matter of let's talk about what to do. It's doing what you know you need to do. And can I make just one last recommendation as I close this morning? If you're a parent whose kids are still at home, I put a link in your note sheet that I encourage you to go and to check out. You can Google search and find this. Uh, there's no silver bullet for parenting. I mean, we know, we understand that. We have no guarantees. I, you know, I stated that this morning. But Columbia University did a study to see if they could find a link uh, between uh, things that help keep kids from at-risk behaviors, particularly involving drugs and alcohol and, and, and sexuality, things along those lines. So they did this study, and, and the results were, were clear and, and staggering and incredibly simple. They found that teenagers who had dinner with their families five to seven times a week were less likely to be involved in at-risk behaviors related to alcohol and drugs and sexuality. So I encourage you to take 10 minutes, look up that link, and it's probably going to take you more than 10 minutes because here's the thing. They discovered this about seven years ago, and they've re-researched it every single year since then, and the findings have been the same. There are now seven versions of this study online that you'll go back and see. And I put a quote in your outline there from Time Magazine when they first saw this article and this link several years ago. But here's the thing about this. It's not the meal, all right? It's the relationship. The relationship, that being grounded in that relationship to know that you're not alone, to know that there are people there who care and who love you and people who instill uh, the truth and the knowledge of what's right and what's wrong and what we are to do. And that's the same for us in our lives, in every area of our life. It's our relationship with Christ that we draw near to him and we surrender ourselves to him, that we're dependent upon him so we can answer God's call for our lives just as Elijah did. And here's the thing, as we draw near to God and we have that relationship with him, he will give us everything we need in order to finish well. It starts in that relationship with him. Maybe it didn't start well, but today God has spoken to your heart and you know that he wants you to finish well. And you need to make some changes and you want to commit yourself and surrender yourself to God today and say, God, I want to make these changes. I want to do what you would have me to do it, to do. Remember, you can't do it on your own. You can only do it as you draw near to Christ. Listen for his voice. Experience his power. And let him accomplish his will and his purposes for your life.